Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast on a high-level overview of the jitting process inside the Java Virtual Machine. I'm going to give a shout-out to uh, Sophia Gold from Quora, who asked the question. And, and basically, this is a, a, you know, a talk I've given plenty of times um, live in front of lots of audiences. So this will be the easy, short podcast version. Um, and this is just a basic discussion of what happens and how it works that the, the, the JIT kicks in and, and uh, generates code and you get to use the code and run fast inside the Java Virtual Machine. So really, I'm talking about uh, basically invoking a compiler and running the, you know, and, and running the things that comes out of it. So really, it's, like I said, it's, it's a compiler. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to read some language one, which it's in memory bytecodes. Um, typically of loaded classes, and we're right back out. Some language two, it's typically the machine code that you're going to execute. Um, and there's no go to disk step, there's no files generated during this process. This is all memory to memory. This is not Java C compiling Java the language to Java the bytecodes. This is Java bytecodes getting uh, transliterated into machine code, right? There's no, like I said, there's no disk step, there's no file step, there's no assembly step in the traditional sense either. So as compilers go, a bunch of pieces are cut out from a standard compiler path. Um, you don't have to read a file or write a file. You're going to read some in-memory bytecodes and write some machine code into a buffer of memory. Yeah, okay. So how does this get started? Well, really the Java virtual machine starts life by interpreting your program. It's running in an interpreter. What's an interpreter? It's a bunch of machine code that put together that reads a bytecode and does it, reads a bytecode and does it. it. It mimics the Java execution stack, which is a stack-based machine, um, pretty much directly. So, you know, this is running all the time. It's the start of how things go. And then uh, while you're interpreting, there's a counter uh, being kept on every method that gets run by the interpreter. You get plus one on that counter every time you invoke a method, plus one more every time you take a back edge of a loop, a backwards branch. And when the counter hits 10,000, the interpreter says, too much, let's call out to the compiler. So the interpreter grabs the method in question that had the counter trigger and throws a, a, a message, a task job over to the compiler. Now the compiler is running in a background thread. And in fact, there's a pool of compiler threads waiting for work to show up from possibly a bunch of interpreter threads. If you're a multi-threaded program, it happens right away. A lot of interpreter threads are running. They're throwing jobs out of the compiler pool, thread pool, and the compool gets bigger or smaller according to how much work there is. But some thread, some compiler thread picks up the method that got triggered and starts wanting to compile it. So the first thing that happens there is that the triggered method is rarely the method that you want to compile. It's often an accessor. An accessor gets called many, many times from many, many places, but it consists of like load a field. So you know that only speeds up the one bytecode that loaded a field and then the return bytecode. It doesn't help you. You actually want to go up the call chain um, a few iterations to see what it is that who called who called who and decide what's the right point to begin a bigger chunk of things to get compiled. Um, so there's an inlining scope that has to get decided. There's a top-level method and an inlining scope. Once a top-level method is decided, you then look at what it calls and what that recursively calls and you decide what you're going to inline here. So you're going to inline the triggered method. You're going to inline things that are cheap and easy, like accessors are so small it's almost always more efficient to inline them than not, even if your compilation gets very large, because the, the act of making a call is more instructions than the act of an inline accessor, which is a single load op. 
hot methods want to get called. Methods that are either called themselves a lot or internally have loops where you want to have context for the loop to better optimize it. Converse side, you exclude things that you never call. You want to exclude uh, low frequency exception paths, you know, things that are uh, leading to code that's like not loaded yet. Not loaded meant never called, and you have no data, no uh, profiling on it. So you just like cut off these paths. So while you're deciding what's to get inlined, you also collect dependencies on what you're calling. Because there's a lot of times you'll make optimizations, these are called heroic optimizations in the hotspot lingo, of uh, things that um, are not legal to do in the broad sense, but are correct to do at the current context. So an example would be you have a virtual call to some method. At the time the compile starts, there is only one implementation. There are no subclasses here. And because it's only one implementation, there's only one possible target for the virtual call. But another class might get loaded somewhere down the road and, and bring in a new virtual call target. In which case, the, the, you know, if you go from the, the abstract version to the concrete version of the call, um, now you have two concrete targets. You have to make a decision before you call which one. You have to dispatch. right? So until that happens, though, it's OK to force inlining of the one virtual call that's available. And that's, in fact, very, very common that that stays for the entire lifetime of the Java program. And it's a high, it's a high payoff optimization to do. But to be correct, you have to have a dependency that says, if you load a subclass of this guy, I have to recompile. Okay? Same thing for loading from fields. If they're static fields and they're not changing, you can load a, the a value out of the field and say, until somebody writes a new value in this field, it's a constant, as far as I'm concerned. You know, final fields, which obviously have to have a constant until you use reflection, and then they're not really constant anymore. So there's a lot of things you want to grab here for dependencies and what you're going to call, and collect them off to the side. So once that's done, you start to actually parse bytecodes. And you do this, uh, Hotspot's doing this by starting from the, the top level uh, called method, the, the top level compiled method, not the trigger method. And you parse bytecode by bytecode, and you're building um, SSA form directly. What's SSA form? Static single assignment. If you're not a compiler geek, drop it. It's, uh, it's an intermediate representation. It's the, it's the reified version of the bytecodes in a form that you can easily do optimizations on. It's, a, it's an intermediate representation from a compiler's world. It's a graph-based intermediate representation. It's very lightweight and fast to manipulate relative to sort of existing um, IRs that are out there. In fact, a lot of compilers changed uh, how they do it because of Hotspot. It's fully typed. It has all the same types as the Java bytecodes have. It, in fact, typically immediately infers much stronger types, including notions of you are a subtype or not, or which one, or which interfaces you support or not. Even if they're not necessarily declared, it can discover stronger subtyping. Like something is only typed as object, but somebody does an instance of on it, and the instance of it down to a capital I integer or capital D double, when then you know it's a double, not an object, despite it. So you get stronger than the declared types passed around. There's a notion of null or not null in the typing system as well. So you can get rid of null checks aggressively. Um, there's integer ranges for loops that have constant bounds and so on and so forth. So once that IR is parsed, and this includes all the inlining steps. So as you come to a, a Java invoke bytecode, you'll look at what you decide you're going to call and you inline it. And maybe it's two possible targets, but only two. So you might inline them both with an if call to say left or right. And if they're small enough, you inline them both with an if. Um, you know, you, you get a pile of uh, 
IR that's somewhere between you know 10 bytecodes worth of 10 IR nodes to tens of thousands, depends on how big the compilation unit gets. And then once you have that in hand, you begin optimizing it for sort of in earnest. So it's mostly all graph rewrite rules. It's a graph-based IR. You incrementally apply rules in a, from a work list sort of style thing. When you change a piece of the graph, you throw the neighbors on the work list and inspect them for changes and so on. You rewrite them to shrink the graph, to remove, you know, dead code just becomes unreachable. That's one of the nice things about that. But a lot of constant folding happens, a lot of control flow optimizations where it's a constant into an if test that goes left or right, you know now and you can kill the other side. Um, you might discover values that are merging at merge points are all the same, so they become a, a, a unique va same value for everything and so on and so forth. Once that sort of stabilizes out, you go to sort of round two optimizations. They use little loop-based optimizations, um, range check elimination, uh, loop unrolling, and, and basically anything to do with hot code you pay more love on. And you, then you go back to you know, the, the big uh, graph write rule, simplify, game, lather, rinse, repeat until things kind of stabilize out. <clears throat> and you now go to the next step where you're going to schedule the instructions. So you pick sort of basic blocks and you do a lot of branch frequency analysis and basic block frequency analysis to know where to put code and you know if you have choices on how you can move it around. You do instruction selection um, and, and you keep this still, it's all in SSA form, it's all this graph based IR, but still now with machine, actual machine instructions and not some sort of super lightweight, thin, uh, risky style IR. Uh, and then you do register allocation. It's a full-blown, high-quality graph coloring register allocator. It's not what I'm going to go into depth on today. But you get a register allocation of the dang thing. And then um, you get to code emission, and you're going to write out stuff uh, in what we call MASM, a, a macro assembler, but there's not really assembler. It's an in-house, in-memory only kind of assembler, sort of. We generate machine code pretty directly, but there's a bunch of extra features you have to have in the machine code, including you're going to relocate it, uh, and so absolute addresses have to be indicated in the code so they can get relocated when you relocate it. Um, you can have constant oops in the code, uh, object-oriented pointers. These have to be garbage collected. They have to be indicated. They have to be available for uh, direct self-modifying code updates. Inline caches have to be direct modified code updates. Those cannot span an instruction cache line because you cannot do an atomic update on uh, cross cache lines. So there's some null padding to make sure you know invoke virtual calls land in the right place and so on and so forth. Um, once that's sort of settled out, including a lot of side data that's recorded, all your GC points and all your safe points and your relocation is all you know scrolled off to the side next to the machine code, you go begin to do the install process. I'll claim you know, completion's done, now we're going to install the code. So installation is you put it somewhere in the code cache and you update all the relocations so it's done correctly. You now have to verify all the dependencies that you picked up during the compile. Because if something changed during the compile, the compilation's dead. It's dead on arrival and you want to throw it away. When you decide that you're passing all the dependencies, you now lock the class loader and you lock the code cache and you recheck them all. Um, but no class loading happens while you check them. And at that point, it's clean. You can turn on the code and unlock the, the class loader and a new class might immediately load the next clock cycle and invalidate the code, but it didn't happen while you were doing your, your install process. And once the code's turned on, the next time the interpreter calls a method, every time he calls a method, he checks a, fly, a flag, a field that says, there is generated machine code for this method. And if there is, instead of 
making a call via the interpreter, he makes a direct call out to the, the target code. And this typically means he's handed his arguments to an interpreter in this uh, uh, virtual stack machine format. The compiled code is like high quality compiled code you expect out of a C compiler or Fortran or something. And the arguments are in registers, not on a stack. So he has to do an argument shuffle and mess around, but then he jumps to the compiled code. A compiled code then is going to run typically 10 times faster than the interpreter and is geared to call compiled code from compiled code. So once you get into the compiled code and you don't end up going back to the interpreter, it's, it's basically as fast as you can go. It's as good as any high quality optimizing compiler will get you. And that's the way the program runs until some event happens which will call you to deinstall or uninstall code. So there's a whole code lifetime thing involved in the compiler. You know, there wasn't code, there was a compile step, there was an install, now you have code, and now you're running the compiled code, and then there's a deinstall, and then you won't have code. And deinstall is also a complicated operation, and it happens um, when some sort of code invariant or dependency changes. So in the common case, a new class gets loaded, and you're going to make a new object with a new class, and when you make the virtual call, it has to go to the new virtual call, but the compiled code inline the old single target, only one kind of class could be here, and it's just wrong. It's just, you can't do it. So before you let the new code exist, you have to stop existing threads, which are running in the old compiled code. So the new class wants to load. It doesn't get a chance until you first look at all the running threads. See if they're running in any of these codes, and if they are, you have to de-optimize them. Oh my god, what does that mean? Well, that means you can't let them execute another machine instruction of this method. Well, they're probably actually not necessarily in the method running it. They're in something that they've called from the hot compiled method. So you have to go patch the stack. So when you unwind back into the compiled code, it doesn't execute anymore. It jumps off somewhere. And then it unpacks the stack, the compiled stack frame, and it repacks it to the interpreter. It's detailed. It's nitpicky. It's not really rocket science, but it's very detail-oriented. And, and you know, it's tricky to get right, but once you get it right, you know, it's pretty quick, it's reasonably quick enough, and, and flawlessly it'll flip back to the interpreter, and you'll be running off the interpreter, and the target method code is finally considered dead, and now you can load your new class and, uh, and let it, you know, let it, let it do what it's going to do. And then because you, you said the target method was dead, the compiled method, the, uh, the, the Java method, which had an implementation of bytecodes, but it had an implementation in compiled code as well, that got killed dead. Now you want to make it again. So you once more go back and trigger it and say, well, you know, as soon as you make another call in here, it's time to like start compiling this code again. So you reset the compile counter. More profile stats are gathered and pretty quickly it gets rejitted with the new, uh, the new state of the world, you know, the new class available to it. Okay, so that was sort of, uh, you know, 15 minutes or less, uh, a quick round trip through what goes on in the jitting processes at a very high level. If you want to go into optimizing compilers, that's like a giant long, you know, there, there are a thousand PhDs in optimizing compiler technologies floating around a hundred or more hundreds in the Java alone. Um, that's a big topic, and I don't want to do it here. Graph-based IR is very cool, very, very niche-oriented. But let's for a very fast, very high quality optimization. Um, and that was the target niche that you know Java Virtual Machine had to do. Installing and removing code and jitting on the fly. Um, that was really new when Java came around. Um, these days, every new every new language has some sort of jitting story baked in. Um, you know, if you're Go, they're gonna generate whole code on the fly, but really fast. So it's a classic compile, execute, run scenario. It's not jitting, but they know the compiler needs to be fast, and so they, they do a fast job, and that's great. 
Um, if you're JavaScript, of course, the compiler has to be way faster than the Java compiler because their their execution cycles are based on people's click-click view on a web page, and so they do uh, you know a much lower quality code optimization, code emission, and and a much faster compile job because that's their target audience. And they actually, you know, JavaScript's harder to get a higher quality than the Java methods. So people try, and there's all like there's as of now for JavaScript and stuff you can do to help things get better. But the default case is still Java makes better code than JavaScript in exchange for having a much heavier weight compiler and a stronger type language, which hands you a lot more information uh, about what you're compiling. Um, you know, other new languages float around, have some kind of story involving JIT. A common one else is, by the way, you just lean on the Java virtual machine. You emit bytecodes if you're Groovy or your Clojure or your Scala or your JRuby or Jython. You're emitting Java bytecodes, and the JITing process is taken care of for you by the Java virtual machine. Um, so, you know, th th it, there, there's a story out there, and it was a very useful and uh, uh, update and change to the way programming's done the world over. Um, I was glad to be, I could play a hand in how that happened, uh, and and you know if you got more questions about jitting process, I still really like talking about it. It's it's a fun thing for me, and I'm kind of the expert here. Uh, let me know, and you know shoot me a question on Twitter or send me an email, and and you know post questions on the blog site, and I'll answer them as best I can. Uh, and with that, may all your jitting be fast and correct. Thanks. Bye bye.